morning. I'm going to be reading Acts 28, verse 16, 30, and 31. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was suffered to dwell by, by himself with a soldier that kept him. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. This is the word of the Lord. I grew up in East Tennessee. <clears throat> I tell you that because I lost my Tennessee accent. <laughs> I went to graduate school in Boston where they made fun of me and just beat it out of me. <laughs> anyway, my father was raised in Lake City, Tennessee, which is the modernized version of the traditional name that that little town had, Coal Creek, Tennessee. My mother was raised in La Follette, Tennessee, which uh, also was in East Tennessee Appalachians. So I used to visit my granny uh, every, uh, every uh, summer. My brother and I, Mike was four years younger than I, uh, my brother and I would go out and spend a week there. That was our vacation. Being a parent now, I realize it wasn't exactly just our vacation. <laughs> So it was like in the mountains, and it was wicked cold. And uh, I tell you, the morning trips to the outhouse were an adventure, let me tell you. And I am not making that up either. <clears throat> it was an exercise in courage. And our weekly bath in a big metal tub with hot water, kind of hot water, heated on the wood stove, poured into there with two boys in the tub. It was an adventure also. So I think one of the things that is my best memory about that time was that uh, Grandmama used to listen to the radio all year and listen to adventure stories like the Cisco Kid. Oh, Pancho. Oh, Cisco. The Lone Ranger. hi Silver. And the Shadow Nose. <laughs> and she would memorize these stories and then tell us these stories. I would lay on that big bed of hers, you know, and kind of, it was so cold, you know, I'd hold onto that, that brass railing and, you know, get under the edge of the lumpy little comforter that she had, and she would hold Mike on her lap. She was blind. She would hold Mike on, the, on her lap, and she would rock. She was a rock star. <laughs> she wasn't a, quite as good as Harry and the boys, but you know, she was a rock star. 
And she would pass on those stories, and that gave me a real appreciation and love for the power of stories. So I'm going to tell you three stories today. And uh, <clears throat> one's a movie plot, so it's a made-up story. One's a personal story, and, uh, and one's a Bible story. And these are about the gratitude that's in suffering. Now, don't get too excited. Let me warn you ahead of time that I am not going to solve the problem of pain today. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> Maybe tomorrow. Unfortunately, I won't be here tomorrow when that happens. Uh, so, I am uh, just going to tell you these, these three stories. So the first one is a, a story of a movie named St. Ralph. I'm just curious, has anybody seen the movie St. Ralph? Okay, well, this is a great story. And uh, spoiler alert, I'm actually going to tell you the end of the story and just remove all the drama from it. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, I have seen this movie 10 times and I still love it every time. So uh, it, even though this is going to spoil the drama, it'll still be a good... Uh, what's that? <laughs> Dang, Harry spoiled it already. So, uh, <clears throat> so St. Ralph is, you know, well, he's Actually, just Ralph, he's a, a teen, he's really a troubled teen, he's living with a single mother in Canada, and the mother develops a, a tumor in her brain, and, and Ralph is going to this Catholic school in Canada, and he is always in trouble. So he is sentenced to be on the cross-country team. <laughs> And this team is coached by Father Hibbert. Father Hibbert is a priest who's lost his faith, and he quotes Nietzsche a lot. <laughs> and about that time, Ralph's mother falls into a deep coma that actually was not caused by Nietzsche. <laughs> Ralph becomes convinced that only a miracle of God can bring his mother out of, a coma, out of this coma. And so he has this questionable theology, but he decides that if God will do a miracle for him, then God can do a miracle for his mother and, and bring her out of the coma. So Ralph shows up for cross-country practice the next day, and uh, the first day of practice, and he complains that he ran all the way over here. It was less than a mile, and he's exhausted. <laughs> I'm not judging Ralph because about the only thing I can run these days is my mouth, and uh, <laughs> so I, no judgment implied. So uh, at the cross-country practice later that week, Father Hibbert says, okay, boys, we better get started. Uh, there's only 180 training days left before the Boston Marathon. And Ralph naively says, is the team going to the Boston Marathon? It's a high school Canada team. Uh, do we have a chance to win it? And Father Hibbert goes, uh, the Boston Marathon is one of the greatest races in the world, 
If anyone in this school ever won the Boston Marathon, that would be a miracle to rival the fishes and the loaves. And Ralph is like, this is the miracle. All we have to do is win the Boston Marathon. And so he goes like, let's run some hills. And he's, you know, charging off. And so for the, most of the rest of the movie, Ralph is, is training for the Boston Marathon. He's trying to be as pure as he can in his youthful misunderstandings of Christianity. And he is pursuing a miracle for his own purpose of getting his mother healed. So he pursues it with self-discipline and with suffering and hard work. And he is just uh, suffering on behalf of his mother. But in the process of that, something happens to Ralph and uh, he starts to become closer to God and uh, actually believe that maybe God wants to heal his mother. Maybe he even wants to heal his mother through having Ralph, a 14-year-old Canadian boy, win the Boston Marathon. And so Ralph improves. And he's supported by a friend, a, a kind of a budding girlfriend also, and also Father Hibbert. And he still faces a lot of obstacles from the leadership in the school. But on the day the Boston Marathon is going to happen, even though the head of the school prohibits it, he gets on a bus and he goes to Boston to race in the Boston Marathon. Does Ralph get his miracle? Drama builds up. <laughs> I've got a little clip. I'm gonna show you the end of the race and show you what happens in the race. Hopefully, I'm gonna show you <laughs> the end of the race. This is Ralph. Holy Dove was moving too, and every breath we drew was hallelujah. Bannon's starting to move. Bannon is starting to move. Walker's got to go now if he has any hope of winning. Bannon still has the lead and is driving furiously for the line. And John Bannon wins Boston. John Bannon wins the Boston Marathon. The 19. Champion repeats in spectacular fashion. The laurel wreath is his. It took 26 miles to decide it, but we finally have a winner. Oh my goodness! I can't remember a marathon ever coming down to the wire like this. You have just been a part of sporting history. my best. It wasn't much. I couldn't feel. So I tried to touch. I've told the truth. I didn't come to fool you. And even though it all went wrong, 
stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah 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 Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Ralph loses the race. His friends are devastated. The worst thing is, his mother is still in a coma. And yet, as his dreams crash to the ground, we're hearing Leonard Cohen's ballad, Hallelujah. Sometimes our best efforts fail. Sometimes we just physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually fall short. I have to say that's all too common in life. And it's hard to be grateful during those times. And maybe even doubly hard to be grateful for those times when we fall short of others and our own expectations. Don't despair, though. That movie's not over. If you want to see how it turns out, I urge you to watch it. <laughs> Be sure to screen it before you let the little ones see it. Though. It's got some questionable things in it. <clears throat> the point is that suffering, even well-meaning suffering for the benefit of another, doesn't always pay off in getting the physical or the spiritual rewards that we seek. Leonard Cohen's brilliant song, Hallelujah, is not a Christian ballad. It's not even a Jewish ballad, even though it has some biblical symbolism in it. It's a secular ballad that captures our human struggle with pain, suffering, temptation, failure. But amid those disappointments, I believe that the hallelujah is the, and yet, Jesus. That is the point of that ballad. Hallelujah is the bottom line. We praise God when we win. We praise God when we lose. And everything, we want to praise God, even though it's hard. Ralph could be grateful that even though he didn't get what he wanted, he didn't get what he deserved either. So Ralph did not get the miracle of his mother's coming out of the coma. We don't just get everything we hope for and pray for. But the change in Ralph was actually a miracle. From a boy who got into trouble continually and had to be sentenced to run cross country, he became a disciplined, genuinely caring for God, 
boy. Father Hibbert, Ralph's running coach, regained his faith. Ralph's friends changed their attitude toward Ralph, and all of them could feel grateful to God for the experience they had, even though it wasn't the experience they wanted to have. That's the gratitude of suffering. Okay, story number two, real life story. Well, this story is about Kirby, actually, who has suffered from multiple pains for years. It's a short story because I think most people are well aware of that story. She's often felt as if her health, her ministry, her future has been stripped away, but she's persevered. What I've noticed is that Kirby is a prayer. She prays for people all day long, off and on. She talks on the phone to many people through the week. She prays for them. To me, this is a lot like the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. As you know, in that movie, Jimmy Stewart characters, George Bailey, had big dreams. He was going to go world traveling, but the depression came and a panicked run on his savings and loan association business had to be calmed with the money that he was going to use for that. He was going to go to college, but he let his brother go to college instead. In fact, all of his dreams crashed to the ground. And yet when his uncle Billy lost a bunch of money and it looked like George Bailey was going to lose everything, a novice angel, Clarence, was dispatched to keep George from committing suicide. And he did. How? Showing what a difference he had made to other people. How things would have been different. He started that by throwing himself into an icy river, knowing the heart of George Bailey, who would jump in and save him. Well, George <clears throat> was loved by God, regardless of what he did or did not accomplish. And Clarence was sent to rescue George. I think Kirby's a lot like George Bailey. God has loved her since she was knitted together in her mother's womb, if not before. But I believe that her life is a pleasing thing to God. <clears throat> Remember chariots of fire? The Eric Little character says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. <laughs> I believe that God made Kirby a prayer. She prays. She is able to feel his pleasure. So after years of struggle, she can say, now I feel his pleasure. I certainly would love to be healed, but I feel like I have found a ministry for me, at least for this season of my life. This is the gratitude that comes in her suffering. She can look around and be helpful. 
Look ahead and be hopeful. And look back and be grateful. Story number three. This is about Paul and his journey to Rome. So this story is told by Luke in, in Acts 27 and 28, which Ashley read a very short portion of. Paul is a prisoner. He's being transported by ship from Jerusalem to Rome sometime between the years 58 and 63. It's a prisoner transport ship, and it's headed by a toughened Roman centurion named Julius, likely a century of probably 60 uh, people, uh, nominally 100, but usually they were short of that, uh, soldiers. So Luke recounts this tumultuous trip in Acts 27 and 28. I'm going to concentrate for sake of time on the ending of the trip, but, but let's just summarize a few things. Maybe you can identify with Paul to some degree. Often we may feel like prisoners that are bossed around by others, having direct control over our lives, having uh, uh, control over situations that put us in some kind of threat or danger. We fence, uh, feel a, a sense of suffering that is a sense of, I have no control over my life. So we move from port to port, making slow headway, it seems, and we question whether we are in the right place. Are we in the center of God's will for us? It's easy at those times to look to the consequences that we see and evaluate whether we believe that we might be in God's will. So you see this map, uh, it gives you the overview of Paul's trip. He, they left Jerusalem, which is on the east there, and, uh, and they make these stops along the Mediterranean. I'm sure it's like a Mediterranean vacation there. <laughs> uh, and everything works well until they get to uh, Crete, which is the island out there. And then you notice that after they get to Crete, the, the line gets kind of, you know, shaky at that point because things begin to go very wrong about that time. Paul actually has a word of knowledge and tells those in charge of the voyage that this voyage is going to be disastrous. Of course, Julius, the centurion who's in charge of everything, doesn't listen to Paul. In fact, he listens to everybody else except Paul. But sure enough, this northeaster comes, this hurricane, uh, and blows them all around the Mediterranean. Storms come in our lives. Paul and the ship are blown so much, they have no control. They, tie, they have so little control, they're afraid they're going to lose the lifeboat. They have to tie it to the ship to keep from losing the lifeboat. They throw all their cargo overboard. They throw their ship's tackle overboard. And in verse uh, 20 of 27, it says, when neither sun nor, or, nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued to rage, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Well, this is symbolic, right? They had given up their dreams like St. Ralph like George Bailey, like Kirby did, and threw them overboard just to survive. They gave up all hope. 
Paul comforts them by saying that an angel told him that none on the ship would be lost. The ship would run aground, of course, but none would be lost because Paul has to stand trial in Rome. So for the next 14 days, they don't eat anything. Finally, they begin to approach land, fearing the ship is going to be dashed against the rocks. Some of the men try to escape in a lifeboat. But Paul says to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you can't be saved. And so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Julius, the centurion, has been transformed at the beginning he took anyone's advice except Paul's. But what Paul had foreseen had come true. So now Paul has persuaded Julius to cut loose the lifeboat and they are completely dependent on God through Paul. What evidence did they have that they should heed Paul's guidance? Well, none, except what, Paul, what God has done in the past. They have no visible evidence that they're going to be saved. They might starve. They've thrown their food away. They haven't eaten for 14 days. And, oh, yeah, Paul has said they're going to run aground. That's something to look forward to. <laughs> well, in verses 33 through 38, it says this. It's the word of the Lord. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now, I urge you to take food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks in front of them all. And then he broke it and he began to eat. They were all encouraged, and they ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us, says Luke, on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Paul has just expressed gratitude in their midst, although it is in the face of lack of evidence. This is the gratitude of suffering called lack of evidence. This is the gratitude of faith. But they listened to Paul. Not just the centurion this time. All of the men listened. When God is, uh, what God had done in the past was sufficient to keep them, to keep giving them hope. And so after the meal, in another example of complete dependence on what Paul has told them, they again throw themselves wholeheartedly into belief. They throw all their food overboard and the wind drove them toward land, and they indeed run aground and lost the ship, just like Paul had said. Well, this is a crisis. I don't know if you see it as a crisis, but this is a crisis because the soldiers have been tasked to guard the prisoners. If the prisoners escape, the soldiers are probably going to be punished. They may be killed. They may be posted to some faraway place like England. Uh, Paul is a prisoner. So, it looks like Acts is about to end very prematurely because the soldiers might kill them. But we have a believing centurion in our midst now. 
and he's in charge and he orders everyone to jump overboard and swim or float on planks of the wrecked ship to shore. I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life where I've felt like I was jumping into a stormy sea searching for a plank to grab onto and trying to get to shore. But they made it to shore and not one was lost. So let's review where we are. We're in that rough part across the Mediterranean and finally they land on that little bitty island, Malta. So let's pick up the scripture at Acts 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us an unusual kindness. They built a fire. They welcomed us because it was raining and cold. Well, you know, it's been a long journey for Paul, right? And uh, thank the Lord he is finally safe and getting a little love. It's about time. What could go wrong? Go wrong. Go wrong. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on Paul's hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. Now, I'm just saying, isn't that the way it often is? You were right in the middle of a snake bite, and we get judged. <laughs> this is just not right. There's something wrong with this. Okay, verse 5. But uh, Paul shook the snake off into the fire, suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds. And they said he was a god. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to admit, this has not exactly been my life. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I mean, I get the part about being judged. You know, I understand that. But, you know, I've uh, not had people rise up and call me a god. <laughs> you know, but then again, I haven't been snake bit lately either. <laughs> Verse 7, there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, or Publius, the chief official of the island, he welcomed us to his home, showed us generous, generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. Okay, here's God at work again. There's a storm. It drove the ship mercilessly. You know, Paul had to be asking, why? Why, Lord? Why is this happening? But the answer wasn't forthcoming. This time, there's no vision of a man or no angel that's standing beside him, which happened before. He didn't know God's purpose, though he probably searched the scriptures. He probably got looked for confirmation among other believers. Uh, he probably listened for that still small voice saying, go this way or go that way. But none of that showed him what, uh, you know, whether he was in God's will. All of these are common guidance uh, suggestions that we get about how to know the will of God and how to know God's purposes. But they all had been exhausted for uh, Paul. So how did Paul find out what God had for him? just kept putting one foot in front of the other. 
walking with the invisible but trustworthy God through Jesus and the leading of the Holy Spirit and by being oriented to laying his life down for others, he visited a sick man. He prayed. He laid his hands on the man, and God healed the man. And then Paul remained open to what God had brought to him at that particular time in that particular place. I don't think Paul assumed that he had found the pattern of God for his life. Just get caught by a storm, get shipwrecked, get snake bitten, and you'll be called on to heal many people. <laughs> and I don't think he, he said that's the pattern God has for me. No, Paul stayed close to God and put one foot in front of the other and let God lead him. And after three months, they put out to sea again. And so we pick up at verse 14. And so we came to Rome... The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. I don't want to suppose how they got, you know, sidetracked into three taverns, but <laughs> at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him for two whole years. Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul is in Rome. He's talking to and teaching and ministering to people who come to see him every day. We can all be like Paul doing that. But don't forget that all this time Paul is chained to a Roman soldier, probably a different Roman soldier every day. I think that's probably unpleasant. He must have thought, why, why, Lord? And as far as we know, he never learned why. There was this guy named Paul Harvey. He used to have a little short two-minute radio program every day the rest of the story. And he would tell a story. It was a kind of a cliffhanger. And then he, they would broke for a commercial. And then Paul Harvey would come back with the exciting twist and the conclusion and end by saying, and that's the rest of the story. So why did God keep Paul talking and teaching and ministering to the visitors two years while chained to soldier after soldier? Well, here's an idea. Rome ruled the world with the Pax Romana at that time, the Roman peace. Rome sent soldiers throughout the entire known world. Paul never got to go to Spain, even though he wanted to go to Spain. He said so in Romans. Never got to Spain. Soldiers did. Never got to go back to the Middle East. Soldiers did. Never got to go to England, to France. Soldiers did. They went to many places that Paul never could reach. Could it be that God had a plan? What a surprise. Could it be that these soldiers who listened to Paul spread the Christian good news to his visitors, uh, listened to Paul spread the Christian good news to his visitors, that they turned around 
and spread it throughout the known world. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, could become the peace that passes understanding for millions of people. And I believe that that is the rest of the story. Now maybe you feel like a prisoner sometimes, chained to your job or to some kind of relationship like an unpleasant boss or a bully at school. But God has a plan. It's a wonderful plan. If we can, it's wonderful if we can use the practical wisdom of Christianity to figure out what that plan is. Scripture, consent of other people. But sometimes we just have to put one foot in front of the other and walk with God and let God develop the plan in front of us. But God has us doing these things uh, why God has us doing these things might never become clear to us. Sometimes our chains and our prison of suffering, our stormy seas, our lack of evidence, our feelings of lack of control have a grand purpose, but we don't know this side of death. So this sermon's about the gratitude in suffering. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is about to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Jesus suffered for us. We who did not deserve to partake in his sufferings, he laid down his life for his sheep. That suffering has brought us blessings. We partake in his suffering when we too lay down our lives for others, even though we may never see the outcome. My grandma learned stories and told them to her grandchildren. She never knew what effect her stories were going to have, on me at least. St. Ralph went through rigors of marathon training in the hope that his mother would receive a miracle. George, in It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey laid down his dreams, not knowing what effects he was having on an entire tram. Kirby prays for all, and she can rarely see the effect of those hours of prayer. Paul spent two years chained to Roman soldiers, not seeing the effect of his witnessing, but his life affected all of Christendom. We can continue to trust God, that God has a plan for us, and God's plan is one that will bless many, through what we do, regardless of how limited it might seem to us. And for that, we can have gratitude in our suffering. And for this meal, this communion we're about to eat, and for Jesus' sacrifice that it commemorates, we're grateful.